1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this uh, concluding section of of chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul will tie it all together for us in, in this chapter, Lord, we pray that you would Enable us to focus our mind upon you and upon your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would convict us of our sin. We pray that you would transform our character. Father, we pray that you would enable us to to rightly understand your word, to receive it, As your word, we pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives and to live it out. And Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. In the the opening six verses of this chapter, Paul addresses two foundational truths that are Tremendously important and uh, critical to maintaining unity within the church and unity within relationships, within all relationships, really. In verses 1 to 3, Paul addresses the importance of love over knowledge, if you remember that. That while knowledge is important, he says in verse 1 that love builds up. And of course, we understand that we understand that from the, the panorama of scripture references that we could easily turn to. The second most important text in the entire Old Testament, for example, I mean, other than the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. But according to every good and studied Jew, 
the second most important passage in the entire Bible, aside from the Decalogue, would be the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. There, Scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You know, we sometimes forget that even in the Old Testament, God did not desire simple, rote obedience. But God desired obedience that was driven and shaped by love for God. In the Old Testament, God desired for his people to love him. Then we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus saying, In Matthew 22, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, citing Leviticus 19, 18. And so the two great commandments have to do with love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And of course, the importance of loving God and loving people is found throughout the New Testament. Paul will write, for example, in Romans chapter 13, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the apostle John will write in 1 John chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Yet in Scripture, there is also this emphasis on knowledge and on the importance of knowing God and knowing right theology. Paul addresses this also in verses 4 to 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There he reminds the church in Corinth and ourselves, he reminds his readers of two important theological truths. He says in those two verses, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. In other words, while love trumps knowledge, love must be informed by accurate theology. Again, throughout the Bible, we read about the importance of knowing and studying, memorizing and meditating on God's word in order to know and worship God rightly. Again, the Shema itself in Deuteronomy chapter 6 continues with these words, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them 
diligently to your children. Then we see Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know God's word. We need to know God rightly. We need to know accurate theology. We see Paul, for example, praying for the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1.9. He prays for them that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But knowledge without love, as Paul says in verse 1, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge without love makes one arrogant. Thus, love and knowledge are like the chemicals sodium and Chlorine. The chemical sodium by itself is extremely volatile, especially when it comes in contact with water. It produces extreme heat and actually explodes. There's some interesting, fascinating YouTube videos that some of you parents might want to let your kids watch today after church of people throwing pure balls of sodium into water. And uh, the reaction is quite astounding. The chemical chlorine produces a deadly gas that when it comes in contact with your eyes or is inhaled into your lungs can actually burn the lining of your eyes and the lining of your lungs and can cause death. For that reason, it was used in chemical warfare during World War I. But when sodium and chlorine are brought together, they produce common table salt. One of the most important minerals on the face of the planet. We use it to preserve our meats. In history, we have historically, it's been used to preserve meat. We use it to flavor our food. So also, love and knowledge, when separate, are dangerous and can be damaging to ourselves and to those around us. But when love and knowledge come together in a perfect balance, they are a tremendous blessing in bringing about unity, blessing, and joy. This is what Paul is now going to do in these two in these verses, these remaining verses of our chapter in verses 7 to 13. Paul is going to help them understand, and us, how love and knowledge should work together, how love and knowledge should work together to bring about and maintain unity within the church, unity within relationships. Because love without knowledge or knowledge without love is like sodium without chlorine or chlorine without sodium. They are dangerous and harmful. 
Thus, Paul is going to lay out for the church in Corinth a four-part argument. Three premises he will lay out, three premises, and then he will draw one conclusion from those three premises found at the end of the section. So here is premise number one. There are some who struggle with eating food sacrificed to idols. In other words, he's just stating a fact. He wants to just lay this out as a premise for them to remind them of this truth. There are some who struggle with eating food sacrificed to idols. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, there are some Christians in Corinth who still struggle with the idea that there is only one God. These are Christians who still struggle with that idea. And while that may seem difficult for us to to wrap our mind around, because we in 21st century modern America can think to ourselves, but isn't that basic Christianity? I mean, that there's one God? I mean, isn't that Christianity 101? But you have to realize that when a certain idea, a certain truth, at least in their mind, has been ingrained into your entire life, this is something they've been taught their entire lives, that there are many gods, this is something their family for generations have been brought up to believe and to understand, when you are told that what you have believed and what your family has believed for generations is simply not true, it's not easy for a person to simply switch that off. It'd be difficult for them to do that. I've seen that myself firsthand, uh, being raised in a Roman Catholic family where I have seen, praise the Lord, many of my family members leave Roman Catholicism and put their faith in the one true gospel. They've left the church. They began attending uh, Protestant churches, non-denominational, some of them Baptist churches. And yet still, quite often, many of them would maintain statues in their home for years afterward, even lighting candles periodically on special occasions. Now, while they understood, they clearly understood that intellectually these statues cannot hear their prayers, that that they, they should not pray to them, they don't pray to them, they cannot answer their prayers, they understand that they pray directly to God the Father. While they understand that intellectually, when asked, why don't you get rid of them? The response would often be, and do what with them? Well, just get rid of them. I mean, just throw them in the trash. (gasps) You know God can hear you, right? Well, they understood that these statues, they understood these statues are just clay. That they cannot hear their prayers the idea of treating them just like a piece of clay, breaking them up with a hammer and throwing them into the trash can was just beyond what their conscience could bear. Just just can't do it. You just can't do that to a statue of the Virgin Mary. Just, you, you just can't do it. 
Thus, there are some in, there are some believers in Corinth who, as Paul says, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. While intellectually they understand and have been taught that there is only one God, because of their past, when they see people eating food in an idol's temple, for example, as he says in verse 10, or when they see a Christian eating food that has been sacrificed to an idol, or when they are handed food that has been sacrificed to an idol, their conscience is greatly bothered. They struggle with this. As one commentator, I think, aptly put it, quote, idols are all too real for them. And eating idol food reintroduces them to the world of idolatry. There is a temptation for these believers to slip back into that idolatrous world. And so when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they violate their conscience, which is not good. It is not good that they violate their conscience. This is why Luther stated before the Diet of Worms, quote, it is neither safe nor sane to go against conscience or the word of God, close quote. He was right. Whether your conscience can be supported by Scripture or not, it is never wise, nor is it safe, to do anything that violates your conscience. So it's important to understand that when Paul refers to these believers as weak, understand that is not derogatory. It is not condescending. It is not a measure of their spiritual maturity either. Paul is simply saying that their minds have not been fully transformed by the word of God. Sanctification is a process. And they still struggle with this idea, this practice of eating food that has been offered to idols. Premise number two. Food itself is morally neutral. Food in and of itself is morally neutral. Neutral. Verse 8, Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. So here's a second fact that Paul reminds them of. Food is simply food. It's just food. Whether it's been sacrificed to idols or not. Here, Paul is siding with the knowers, and we'll call them knowers, Oftentimes when people talk about this passage, they'll refer to the strong and the weak, but Paul doesn't use those terms. He doesn't, use, he, doesn't use, he doesn't talk about the strong. You don't see that in the text. He does mention those who are weak. So we're going to refer to this other group as the knowers. These are people within the church who know that eating food that has been offered to idols is nothing. It really isn't. It won't affect you in any way. Paul wants them to understand that those who refrain from eating food that has been sacrificed to idols, that does not make them more holy or bring them closer to God. He also wants them to understand that those who do eat 
food that has been sacrificed to idols, that does not make them more holy. It does not make them more spiritually mature and does not bring them closer to God. This is often where legalism can creep in. As a modern example, oftentimes we have those in the church who don't own a television. They don't watch TV. They don't ever watch movies. They don't ever go to the theaters. They don't ever watch sports or baseball, sad for them. And oftentimes they can feel as though they are closer to God because of it. They are more holy because of it. On the other side, there are those who do watch TV. They do watch movies. They do go to sporting events. And they can sometimes feel as though they are more spiritually mature. They are more holy. They are closer to God because, you see, I am spiritually mature enough that I can handle it. It doesn't affect me. So the question is, who's, who's the more holy one? Who is the one that is closer to God? The answer is neither. Neither. You see, the reason is that because of what Christ has done for the believer, because of his perfect life of obedience, by faith, believers are imputed with the righteousness of Christ, thereby making them perfectly righteous before God, and because of his death on the cross, the believer's sin is completely atoned for, thereby making us completely sinless before God. Thus, because the believer is perfectly righteous and perfectly sinless based on the work of Christ, nothing we do can make us either more holy or less This is the point that Paul wants his readers to grasp throughout Ephesians chapter 1. That because believers are in union with Christ by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are in union with Christ who, who is himself perfectly righteous, then believers are also perfectly righteous. Who, Because Christ in and of himself is perfectly sinless, Believers who are in union with Christ are also perfectly sinless. So long as we remain in Christ by faith, we are perfectly righteous and perfectly sinless, and that can never change, and it does not wax or wane. No matter what you do as a believer, there's a lot of comfort in knowing that. Premise number three. To cause a brother or sister in Christ to violate their conscience is to sin against them and against Christ. Verses 9 to 12. He says in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. It's important to note that the Greek word for take care, blepete, is a very strong word 
of warning that we find in other warning passages, such as Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. There, Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, same word, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So in verse 9, Paul is saying, watch out, be warned that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. What Paul is talking about is that as a believer, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean you should. The knowers should defer to the weak, is what Paul is saying. This is because the knowers will not be tempted to stumble or to violate their conscience by watching the weak abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols. Do you understand that? By watching people abstain from eating food that has been offered to idols is not going to cause the knowers to sin or to stumble or to violate their conscience. Thus, the weak are the ones who are in danger of stumbling. For this reason, the knowers should defer to the weak. Though we don't always see that happening in the church, do we? In today's churches, whenever believers have a personal conviction about something that may or may not be grounded in Scripture, very often the knowers will respond with, well, you just need to get over it. There's nothing wrong with what I am doing, so you just need to deal with it. That's not a very loving approach, is it? Doesn't Jesus command us to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves? Doesn't Jesus command us to treat others in the way that we would want them to treat us? This is what Paul is getting at here. This is how love works with knowledge. This is how love trumps knowledge. He then goes on to provide the logical progression of how the weak person will end up stumbling, sinning, or possibly even falling away from Christ. In verses 10 to 12, he says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. So step one in this progression, this downward spiral for the weak brother or sister, step one is that the believer with the weak conscience sees you eating in an idol's temple and thinks to himself, well, I guess it's okay to do that. I guess it's okay to eat food that has been offered to idols. And so he eats the food that has been offered to idols, and then he feels guilty about what he has done against God. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That's strong language. Step two, he is destroyed. And the Greek means exactly what you think it means. And you think to yourself, what? How, how is that? 
because this brother or sister goes against his conscience because he saw the knower eating food offered to idols. And so he goes against his conscience, believing that it is okay, and so he eats, and then he feels great guilt and remorse and sorrow and is robbed of his joy. He may even begin avoiding church, believing that he has committed a grievous sin against God, and may even begin to doubt his own salvation. You think, Well, all of that just from eating food that has been offered to idols? But you need to understand that in first century Greece, eating food that had been offered to idols was considered an act of worship to a foreign god. Thus, Paul's concern is that by eating food that has been offered to idols, you may end up destroying your brother or sister in Christ because when they do that, they may be convicted of their conscience that they have denied the faith. They have worshipped a foreign god. Step three in this downward progression, verse 12, Paul says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Destroying your brother, you end up sinning against him or her, but you also end up sinning against Christ himself. You see, here's what needs to be understood, is that the example that we set for other people in how we live, this is what Paul is trying to communicate to them. The example that we set to other people in how we live And in the things that we do is a form of teaching, right? We learn in two different ways. We learn through direct teaching or we can learn by observation, by following people's examples. The knowers who would eat food that has been offered to idols in front of the week are essentially saying to them, maybe not with their words, but they are saying to them by their actions, This is okay. Ignore your conscience. Then, when the weak person ignores his conscience, he ends up being destroyed. Or at least his joy is destroyed because he is now racked with guilt. And the person who led them down the wrong path, Paul wants them to understand, is responsible for their destruction. God will hold them accountable for their destruction. I think there's a practical outworking of the point that Paul is making. There's a reason, I believe, that James 3.1 says, Let there not be many teachers among you, knowing that you will be held to a stricter judgment. It's interesting the wording that James uses. In other words, James says that in the church, there should be few people who teach the Bible. Not many, few who teach the Bible, knowing that they will be held to a stricter judgment. Yet in many of today's churches, we allow almost anyone who wants to teach the Bible 
to teach it. We encourage it if that's what they want to do. Recently, I watched a, a video that somebody sent to me, I think it was on YouTube, of a, of a six-year-old preaching an entire sermon to a congregation. And it was an actual church service. He was wearing a suit. Frightening. We laugh, but it's frightening. Because what we so often forget is that when a person teaches the Bible to someone else, you become responsible for what happens to that person. The problem is that so often in many churches, not every church, but in many churches, we tend to treat the Bible like a water gun. You know, this is, this is going to be fun. I'm going to squirt you, and I'm going to wash you with the word of God. This is going to be fun. But the reality is, the Bible is not a water gun, but the Bible is a loaded 45 caliber handgun. And if you are not careful with handling it, you can cause serious damage to other people, or you could even kill them. This is why, <laughs> this is why, for example, I spend one to two full days preparing for a 40-minute message, reading copious amounts of commentaries. This is one of the reasons, this is the main reason, honestly, you know, I chose to go to seminary, which is a ridiculously expensive thing to do. It is a graduate-level private school, ridiculously expensive and unnecessary. There's no law that says you have to go to seminary to pastor a church. Anybody can start a church. Anybody can pastor a church. I actually had people tell me, why are you going through all this work? You know, spending all of this money trying to get there. What? You know you don't have to go to seminary to pastor a church. I understood that. But my desire is that I wanted to sit under trained theologians, and I wanted to be as equipped as I possibly could to handle the Word of God rightly. I wanted to be trained by theologians on how to handle the original languages and how to do proper exegesis, because teaching the Bible in any setting should never be taken lightly. But now the conclusion, now the conclusion to Paul's point. Three premises and one conclusion. So he lists three premises, and it all comes down to this, verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, so you hear the conclusion, right? I've made these points, therefore, this is what it all comes down to. Therefore, in light of these truths, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, obviously, Paul is using a bit of hyperbole here to make a point, because I don't believe Paul is saying, if, if, if eating meat that's been offered to idols is going to make my brother stumble, then no matter where I go, anywhere in the world, I'm just going to live as a vegetarian. Surely Paul would have continued to celebrate the Passover 
and eat the lamb. But Paul is using hyperbole to make a point much in the way that Christ used hyperbole to make a point when he said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus doesn't literally mean chop your hand off if you struggle with stealing. That's not going to fix anything. It's a heart issue. But he's saying be willing to take extreme measures in order to avoid causing yourself to sin. So also Paul is saying if your hand causes your brother or sister to stumble, cut it off. Just cut it off. Don't do it. In the end, he is making the point that while knowledge is good and helpful, love trumps knowledge. If Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life for us, if Jesus is willing to sacrifice his life for us, should we not be willing to sacrifice eating food that has been offered to idols for our brothers and sisters in Christ? What Paul's saying to them. Look at the sacrifice Christ made for us. What sacrifice should we be willing to make for our brothers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Should we not be willing to forego, as believers, should we not be willing to forego almost anything for the sake of our brother's conscience, for the sake of unity within the church, within relationships? This is how love works with knowledge. This is how unity is maintained within the church. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take the words of Scripture to heart, that we would not simply be driven by knowledge and run roughshod over everybody, beating people down theologically and intellectually, crushing their arguments, but Father, we also pray that we would not simply be driven by love that it, it doesn't matter what people believe, it doesn't matter what they do, it doesn't matter how they behave. Father, we pray that we would be a people who would find that perfect balance so that we, our lives would not be like either chlorine or sodium, which are dangerous by themselves but we pray that our lives would be a perfect blend of love and knowledge that we might be a blessing to those around us, that we might be the salt of the earth, that we might be the salt of the church, that we might, that our words might be seasoned with salt as we speak to those around us. And Father, we pray all this in Christ's name.